Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to another edition of Sins Chat Corner. Tonight we're going to start off our interview right off the bat with Valerie of uh, the organization Angels Without Wings. So without further ado, let's get going with the interview. Hello, Valerie. Hey, Cindy. Hey, Valerie. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm very excited, I have to say. I've been waiting all day to do this interview, and I think this is going to be a wonderful experience for the absolute both of us. I have lots and lots of questions for you. So I kind of wanted to start off at the beginning. Um, First off, I just wanted to say how very fortunate that I feel to be hosting such an extraordinarily wonderful individual. You are just an ultimate survivor in my book. Um, Most of the individuals who are listening to our show tonight are going to find out in speaking to you about some of your life experiences and that some are just a combination of both great sorrow as well as jubilant triumphant. So I wanted Thanks. to start off. I'm a little nervous myself, but I'm I'm looking forward to getting them out there so people people kind of understand where I'm coming from and also realize sure. um, why why I'm here. <laughs> oh, certainly, definitely. I thought that it might be a, a good place to commence with. Um, you, let's start with your medical middle. Ugh, I cannot talk tonight. Your middle school experiences. <laughs> Uh, that kind of, to me, seemed logical to start where, as I understand it, obviously we can talk about your first experiences with bullying and kind of where all of this began. Sure, sure. Um, I, yeah, it was definitely um, sixth grade where it all kind of came together and where this started from. Uh, my first ideas came into starting something against bullying. Uh, I was in sixth grade, and uh, it was... I guess an average kind of sixth grade experience. We all had our little groups of friends, and my group of friends kind of came through, you know, kindergarten through five, and I was in the Girl Scouts. Well, it started as brownies into Girl Scouts, and um, there was a one particular girl who I was close with. And over the course of the years, you, you come to realize, you know, what they go through at home, what they're experiencing, what they're what they're not going through at home, what they don't have, and as I had grown very close with her, and not just through what I had known myself, but kind of, and I know people, you know, are going to hear this now, but, you know, like you listen in, as most kids do, you hear what parents are talking about. You hear what teachers are talking about. Kids aren't stupid. You know, you hear what's going on, and the the little girl I was friends with didn't have a lot at home. She did not have what a lot of the other kids have she didn't have the best clothes she wore a lot of the same thing and um people tortured her people put her through living hell and i um i i didn't stand up for her but i didn't walk away from her um you know i sat with her at the lunch table she taught me how to. She taught me how to make those lanyard bracelets. Like when we were younger, that was the big thing. Everybody knew how to make these bracelets. And I sure. remember uh, one year it was her birthday, and she couldn't have anything for her birthday. Her mom just couldn't afford it. And in order to just have a pizza, we were trying to. We were selling them for like fifty cents each, just so she could have a pizza and friends over for her birthday. Like that's how little she had. But people didn't know that. People weren't. I'm saying people. Children weren't apt to the to understand that, you know, this little girl is doing this just to have a pizza for her birthday. She's just selling it for change. And, um, you know, we would sit at the lunch table, and the thing was is she was very well endowed for a sixth grader, and they would throw tissues at her sitting at the lunch table asking her why she stuffed her bra. 
and I would sit there and watch tears pour down her face. And uh, another thing I didn't know, I guess I shouldn't have known at this point, is her parents were going through a very, very frightening divorce. And she it's not even that she could be safe at school with friends that were supporting her. She couldn't even go home and be safe with parents that could say, it's okay, sweetie, you're safe here away from people that are picking on you. She was not safe at school. She was not safe at home. There were days that we were in school and her father would come in and take both her and her little brother away from us. He would come in and take them away so that the mother didn't know where they were. I mean, there was this girl was going through constant torture and people in my school, people I could give the, I could say names right now. I won't, but I could see their faces tearing her apart right now. And, um, the end of the sixth grade, um, I remember she was telling me her mom, her mom got complete custody of them. So she was, you know, so excited. She was done. She could go be with her mom and her little brother started a new life over and I know she was sad because both of her mother's parents were here. And, you know, they were a support system for me, too, because they used to come to all the, the Brownie and Girl Scout events. And um, she was going to be going to Florida. And I knew she was happy. And it was the second to last day of sixth grade. So we all had our yearbooks. And um, we had similar last names, so we sat next to each other in homeroom. And uh, <clears throat> I went into homeroom the second to last day, and she wasn't there. I just, you know, assume she's home packing for, she's going to Florida, she's leaving with her mom. And, you know, I figured I'd call her when I get home, I'd get together with her. And I went into my first period class, and I walked into the room. It's hot, it's the middle of summer. I, all, the whole room is just this thick scent of honeysuckle. You know, like, scents just give you this memory. And this girl turned around, I could see her face, and she said to me, how does it feel to know your best friend was murdered? It's all, it's just, you know, I can see the room spinning around me. I ran out of the room. I ran down the hall to one of my teachers who I still, yeah, thank God I still am close with her. And I just, she just hugged me. I had no idea what was happening. Um, the rest of the day, just, I was just a zombie. I don't, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you how I got through the rest of the day. It was just, I think, just functioning. Uh, I got out to the car after school, and I said, I remember saying to my mom, I said her name to her, and I said, she's dead. And my mom said, don't make a joke like that. And I said, it's not a joke. It's not a joke. And she put on the radio, like we were listening to the news, and it came on over the news about this murder. And her father had murdered both her and her little brother. And it wasn't just over custody or over this. It was because of a religious matter at home and how they were being brought up. And that was the first funeral I ever had to go to. And I was 11 years old. And I remember there were maybe two other people there at this funeral, and not one of them, not one of them was one of the people that had picked on her. And I, from that day on, I have always felt guilty for never standing up for this girl once. I never left her side. I never walked away from her during a situation. But I never ever stood up for this little girl who had no no safety place, nowhere to go, nowhere to run to. And that guilt has never, ever left me for this little girl. 
and I, I say little girl, and right now she should be here with us because she was in a class that should have graduated high school with us, should have gone to the prom with us, everything. And it's unfortunate. I mean, this, she got tortured so bad. She changed her name in fifth grade. In fifth grade, she asked her mom to change her name because people were so nasty to her. And the end, by the end of eighth grade, I started a group in, it was it had to be 95, 1995-96 that I started a group in the middle school, and it was called The Better Way. And it's still going on today at um, George Washington Middle School here in Wayne. And it's, um, it's just to get the kids together to do, you know, just to get together in the school to do good in the community. It's to get the kids to, um, it's anti-smoking, anti-drugs. It's against underage drinking just to get people to realize that they can work together and have somewhere to go after school, have somewhere to go, even during school, just to have friends rather than this, my friend who had nothing, who had nowhere to go, and people had no idea her private life, what she was going through, because people have no idea the inner struggles people suffer from, and they add to it. Certainly, definitely. I wanted to, uh, of course, obviously ask you, um, as a result of her death, maybe you could elaborate to us maybe both the personal as well as the physical toll that you've encountered because of this. Um, and like I, um, I said, that it, I continued to, I took this as like a, it was not a personal offense, but I took a personal I took it very personally that I never stood up for her. I took it very personally that I could not m- make her happy, that I never made her happy. Um, I didn't want to give up, you know, trying to make everyone happy. That I guess that's what kind of bothered me the most is I, I, I'll, I'll tell you right now, I had a very, I was a very happy person. I'm always a happy person. Yeah, I have my bad days. Everyone has bad days, but... I just wanted everyone else to feel as happy as I did. And I had a great childhood. Everything was, I mean, yeah, there were bad times and everything, but what what I started feeling even worse about was people were attacking me as being fake, and I couldn't even stand up for myself, and then that's when it started getting worse. And that's, I think this is when it gets even more personal for me because that's when it started hitting me even more because, I did, I did. and through through high school, the way everybody was picking on each other and in inadvertently picking on me because I couldn't do anything, I I began cutting my senior year, and I don't mean cutting classes, I mean I I was physically cutting, and it wasn't because I was trying to gain attention, it wasn't because I was trying to kill myself, I was just trying to punish myself because I was not succeeding in what I wanted to do. It was purely punishing myself because there was so much anger and hatred going on between everyone and I couldn't do anything about it. And it was, I I felt helpless. There was nothing that I could do and it didn't just, it didn't end in high school. It was just this, it just kept on going and always trying to want to be perfect and keep pushing and pleasing. By the end of my first year in college, I was so sick. I ended up in bed for three months 
you know, it's my body just kept taking these tolls on me, and it just kind of pushed me to an extreme. Yep. In fact, that's what we are just about to uh, delve into, as a matter of fact. I wanted to kind of have you explain to our audience some of the paralyzing repercussions of the circumstances revolving around your college life, because obviously I know one of the things that occurred to you is that you had uh, encountered mononucleosis. So obviously you were physically ill in addition to being a victim yourself to bullying. So maybe you can kind of share with us just how paralyzing that experience was for you. Sure. Um, the that, that entire first year in college, like I was saying, it was it was a complete destruction of my body, and it wasn't just physical. It was emotional. I was accepted into a college, into a special theater program, and I was going to school full-time. I was working two jobs, and by halfway through the semester, people were being so awful to me. I mean, we had this, we had a board, like a conversation board for, you know, people to communicate during the, during the semester, how to get messages to each other without having to find one another. And they would leave really, really hateful letters on there for me. And it wasn't just for me to see. At this point, everyone could read what was going on. And I mean, I I couldn't deal with it. And I'm not, I'm not a vindictive person. I'm not going to go back and write a hateful letter to them. So rather than right back I just went on with what I was doing trying to trying even harder to do better at what I was doing and on top of the emotional stress and now the physical stress of work and school my body just kind of shut down and I did I um my body just gave out and I I did I became too weak and I had full blown motto and I was I was in bed for about 3 months and it was so bad I was allergic to hot and cold and my I lost so much weight that I just completely depleted, and I did. I, I finished and I passed the semester, but that I mean that it was. I was happy about it, but it kind of it meant nothing. Um, by the time I was able to leave the house, I was in my room for such a long time. I, you know, nothing even mattered to me anymore. You know, I was like, do I want to go back to school? Do I even care? Like nothing was there. My my mom was working full time, which was not. And I don't blame my parents for this at all, because she was working full time. My dad was working full time. Like they were working so hard again for the family. But my brother was in school. I was essentially locked up in my room alone. You know, it, and of course, I again my since I had lost my friend, I don't want to say it was hard for me to make friends. But since then, I have. I've had a very bad attachment problem. Like, it's hard for me to get attached to someone, I guess, because okay. I have that constant, not a fear of it, but I, I don't, I, you know what, I'll leave that up to the doctors to see what I have, but I have, I don't, I have the fear of getting attached. And um, so once, I'm sorry to go back to that. Uh, once um, I had gotten back out of bed, I had to go to a doctor for analysis because I had been, you know, literally flat on my back for three months, not moving, going back into the world. So they asked me to go in for an analysis, and um, he had put me on tons and tons of medications. Just, you know, oh, you're this, you're that, you know, you're depressed, you're you're from the dark, you know, you're not going to start seeing things, you're going to do this. And for after several weeks of going through all these medications, I had no idea what my name was. I didn't know where I was. I couldn't feel anything. I, I couldn't even, I couldn't drive. I had I had lost all feeling. I was completely numb. And going through the course of this, I was blaming myself for getting sick. 
you know, it was my fault. I cared too much about what people thought. I was working too hard. I shouldn't have taken on two jobs. And then from going on all this medicine, like everything, I was blaming on myself again. You know, I should have done this. I should have done that. It, like, all came back to myself. Like, I, I would never put the blame on another person. And it turned into me, you know, cutting even worse because, here I am again, blaming myself, punishing myself. And I went back to the doctor, and unfortunately, or, or fortunately as it was, he put me into detox, into an institution. And that's, you know, it was another full-out being, being torture. I, I, in there, they were, I was having food thrown at me. I was being called names. And all I... And I, I remember my parents coming in, and I was just trying to put on this smile on my face. Like, it's okay. You know, I'm fine. I'm just in here. I'm coming out. And they they were, they were not that they were mad, but they I guess it was a, a situation where it's like embarrassing or anger, frightening, all those things. But inside, it was like I was feeling all that, please just show me the support. And, it, like, internally I was like, this is my fault again. And then uh, the next day, you know, I demanded to be released. I told the doctor, I said, this is nothing of what you told me. I was just coming in because you put this medicine in me. Get it out of me. And um, he said something so disgusting to me. I will never, I, I won't repeat it. The, the few people who need to know it, know it. And, um... <sighs> Once I got out, uh, the day after, I encountered another situation. Um, I, I told you about it. <laughs> I had another Correct. situation. And, um, you know, I, I, again, it was just something, it was just mo hit after hit after hit. And then a few days later, here it is again, and it's September 11th. It was just, you know, like it was punch after punch, and everything I felt was my fault. And I couldn't understand why I couldn't change anything, you know, and not having someone to turn to. I didn't trust anyone. I was afraid that, you know, they were going to flip on me the way I saw them do to her, the way they did to me when I was in school. Like, I just, I was so afraid to turn to someone, so I would just turn, instead of turning to myself, I'd turn on myself. I would punish myself even harder. And I, I, interestingly enough, I don't want to interrupt you, certainly, but I, it just occurred to me that we may want to ask this question, obviously, because you've had that random battle on and off through your life, obviously, with utilizing the cutting in terms of what you felt as a way of coping. I, I'm just curious to ask you, um, when did you yourself finally begin to notice the actual real destructive nature of those types of actions? When did that finally sink in, or has it? Um I would um I would probably say right before um I started right before the doctor had put me in to to detox off the medication right but like right when I was feeling really numb because I was scared for myself and it was almost like I could see what was happening but I couldn't stop it and I was so scared that one day I would be so mad at myself that it would go beyond just a cut. Okay. 
and I I was I was terrified, but I was so at the same time mad at myself. Like it was it was almost a conflict within because I, I couldn't. I felt like I was punishing myself for everything happening. And I, I will, I will, um, what he was also, I will, I will put it out there. It's, you know, and I had discussed this with you also. It's what he was trying to, I guess, you know, take care of. And another doctor ended up actually taking care of me very well down the line is I do suffer from very severe bipolar. And I think that that had a lot to do with it then. But, again, when you're younger and you encounter things like that, they don't want to address it. They don't want to treat it. And they call it other things. And, you know, but even now when people say bipolar, they think, I'm going to, they say, not, they don't say crazy, but it's like, oh, it's split personalities. It's one minute they're nice, one minute they're angry. And it's nothing to do with that. It's a few, it's either a week cycle, it's a month cycle, it's, months, years cycle, it's going from either being really depressed to being manic from, you know, a few sad days to hyper days. There's days when I just want to sleep, weeks of sleep, to nights when I can't sleep. My mind is racing. It has nothing to do with the, you know, the extremes of one personality is, oh, you know, this is how it is, and then in an instant I'm going to snap and scream at you like I'm a monster. You know, but you know what? Maybe let's call it uh, having a period or something. That's just my <laughs> anger snaps. Yes. But yes. You know, Although I, I do have to, yeah, I, I do have to interject there, and I have to say, and fortunately you've been very lucky in that I have, uh, for my listeners, of course, we all know that I've been bipolar for a long time, and I will be the first to admit that I get called crazy. I've been called crazy. I find that remotely very, very offensive. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think that there is some persona out there by some individuals who are uneducated that, you are crazy. In fact, you must have read my mind. My actual next question to you was going to be relative to this, actually. Um, <laughs> I'm wondering if you can share for us, as in case the audience does not know, each bipolar individual has their own personal symptoms with their own personal diagnosis. I'm wondering if you can share some of your own personal symptoms along with your coping abilities that are related to, let's say, the lapses in time where you have no medication, how you deal with that. Sure. Um, I well, actually, I'm going to tell you very truthfully when I what I feel about mine is mine is kind of I almost feel it's a blessing because I'm overly and extremely emotional. I feel like when someone is sad, I can feel they're sad, and I I cry. I cry very hard for everything. When someone is happy, I am overly happy. I'm extremely happy. When you know, I feel like I can feel people's emotions. I know that sounds, I don't know if it's, I mean, don't, it sounds silly to people, but I don't think it sounds silly. Or, like, no. if I see someone in the street who, who is hungry, I'm going to cry. I'm going to probably cry for days over that. I'm going to want to go back and give them food for a month. You know, like, I feel people's hurt. I feel people's happiness. And that, I, I want to feel it as a blessing because I don't think a lot of people have those emotions for people. I think people just don't feel compassion enough, and I feel overly compassionate. And, yeah, you know, it, it does hinder my day a lot because if I experience something in the morning, the rest of my day is shot <laughs> because I can't let it go. Cool. And, you, you know, I, I don't want to say that that's something that's bad because a lot of people don't have that, and I think that's bad. <laughs> Because you have to realize that everyone has feelings, whether you want to admit it or not. 
even the coldest person out there is going to go home at some point and cry and realize I'm hurt. Correct. But um, and I do feel bipolars feel it a lot stronger. I think our emotions are just by nature just very very passionate on either side of the fence. Yeah, um, and I think I and I I hope that a lot of people realize it is a blessing in some cases or most cases. But you I know, know it does. And I think you, go ahead. <laughs> I don't know where I was going anymore. I'm, I'm curious just because obviously there's been a and and I wanted to ask you this additionally. Being a bipolar person myself, I I know this for myself to be true, and there's a lot of research being done in that. There is a definitive link between bipolar individuals and creativity. Would you feel that yourself, is a, are you applicable in that particular situation? Do you find you're creative to some extent, or in, do you think you're I'm so bipolar? glad you said that. <laughs> um, actually, uh, there were, a, you know what, I'm going to tell you what bothers me. When I was taking certain medications, that was one of the things that bothered me the most is all of a sudden I stopped painting. I stopped doing my crafts. I stopped, you know, doing my clay. I stopped doing everything. I love playing the piano. I love painting. I love getting my hands into any kind of field of art. I love writing. I think that some of the most creative people, some of the most famous, you know this, I'm sure, some of the most famous artists, some of the most famous creators are some form of, have some form of bipolar, have some form of, um, I can't think of the other word, but I feel like I go off so, on such tangents sometimes of an artistic, like an artistic way, I feel like that's such a, I feel like that's a blessing as well. And sometimes, unfortunately, when I don't take my medicine, those are my best days. Ah, interesting. Mm -hmm. That's one I have not heard before. Now, I wanted to ask you uh, more painful questions. I apologize in advance. Um, For those, of course, in the audience that don't know, uh, there has been for you, unfortunately, a very repetitive pattern I see with your relationships and that uh, the individuals, males who are you involved with are either physically or emotionally abusive. In the past, you found yourself repeatedly alone, at times homeless, losing your friends, Mm -hmm. Now, looking back, if you can maybe explain to us, first of all, do you feel that there was some pattern to the gentlemen that were attracted to you, as well as the choices that you decided to make to protect yourself in those situations? Um, I do. I think I think a lot of them were, unfortunately, oh, yeah, this is, um, I, I don't want to, I think I was very, I was a very, I am, I, no, I was a very weak person when it came to people. I didn't think anyone could love me for who I who I am. I'm not going to say was, who I am, because I do have such a, I don't want to say a different kind of past, because it's not different. I, people have been through much, much worse than I have, and different things than I have, and you know, have survived far worse than I have. And, you know, I I would love them far more than others could love them, but I was so afraid that no one could ever love me. And, you know, I almost, I still have that fear. But um, I think that half the time I was just thankful that someone did love me. And other times I saw someone I wanted to save. And I think that has, that's a lot of, 
what I was trying to do is I saw someone I wanted to save, and in the end, I ended up being absolutely destroyed. And like you said, I, I did. I ended up um, one time, unfortunately, I did. I lost everything. The person uh, actually had had um, destroyed where I lived, destroyed uh, my car on well, once, and also threatened my family. And I did. I had to move. And then I, I, just, I think I even tagged, uh, told you how many addresses I had, probably about nine or ten addresses from going around. And um, at one point I was, I was uh, told, you know, we're going to go here, and I moved, and I was left homeless for quite some time. And I, you know, I, I, and yeah, I didn't. My parents really didn't even know what was going on, you know, and. That, if I told them what was going on, of course they would have done anything for me. But it, it was holding on to my pride too hard, and I, you know, I, of course, you know, I'm going through the things of, you know, punishing myself. This is wrong. This is it. And I, you know, I'm too fat. I'm too this. Is what I'm being told, and that. So every time I'm eating, you know, if I took a bite of this, I'm cutting myself as a punishment. If I went out to eat, I ate too much. I'm cutting myself as a punishment. So. All this whole time of being rejected and trying to do this is a constant. It was a constant battle for years and for years. And, you know, it was all these things in my head from middle school, from high school, of all these things that I was remembering and I'm hearing all through my, my adulthood, all through my mid-20s. Is, you know, it's like, was this ever going to end? And then, you know, the final straw was about two years ago and, you know, coming coming home and just having someone to, my, to a home that I, I shared and just being like, you know, Here's your U-Haul, bye. It was the end, and I, I like, you know, earlier I was, I had been sick all these years, and it just kept getting worse and worse. And then two years ago was to the point where I, I had to move home. I needed my, my parents to, you know, help me with everything. And even now, I, I don't think I could live alone because of the situation I'm in. And like I said, I, I feel like I would never want to put that burden on a man, so it's almost like, could someone love me for what I am, for what I've been through? Even though I don't believe in bringing the past into it, I have to bring my health into it. I have to bring who I am into it, and is that something someone could love? Of course. You're already lovable, Valerie. Just add a little bit in there. Just bring that in there. And just when we thought we didn't have enough covered, on to the next wonderfully bright subject. Um <laughs> I find it very fascinating um, that you've made grand strides in the area of furthering yourself as an individual. Now, when I say that, I mean, for instance, um, for those of you that don't know, um, I know that you had been cast in role, uh, Disney roles, actually, as a matter of fact, in Florida, which I thought was kind of cool, um, achieving, obviously, your own educational needs. Obviously, you've mm-hmm. held certain particular uh, job capacities that allowed you to work with individuals where there were situations that you were helpful with as it relates to bullying, as well as, of course, establishing your foundation. Now, I'm wondering where you found the courage and the, and the drive to accomplish these life callings. Um, uh, well, specifically for um, wanting to be a princess, I guess. I'll go to that one. Um, I, I'd always... I think every little girl wants to be a princess at one point. Um, I just, that was a dream from when I could remember. And then as I got into uh, theater my first year in college, 
I did get discouraged. I'm not going to lie. You know, it was very discouraging to see the kind of field it was, the kind of people that were in the field. They were just very hard. But I guess that's the kind of thing you need, you know, that ability to kind of be there and have that drive and that whole thing. But I, I didn't have it, and it was very discouraging. But it was it's Disney that I wanted, and Disney couldn't be like that. Um, and then <laughs> uh, I guess it was a year or two later, and, you know, it was even more discouraging because people were like, oh, you know, you're not tall enough, you're not thin enough, you don't fit the molds. And I had gone down for vacation. I had actually met my family down there, and I sat on a bench in the Disney store in Disney, and I, I said to my mom, I was like, I have to do this. This is what I have to do. And um, I went down a week later. They had this big open call, and I just took a plane down, and I tried everything I could. I was auditioning and auditioning and auditioning, and they they did. They they offered me the job, and they said, when can you start? And I was like, ah, two weeks. So I had a, I came home and with my mom packed up my car, said you know all my goodbyes. I was like, okay, I'm going to Florida. I I quit school again. I, I know. I hope my dad's listening. I'm sorry, dad. I promised you I'd go back, and I did. And um, you know that that was it. And when I got down to Florida, found a place to live. I didn't go you know anything with Disney. I had to do it all on my own. And as much as I loved everything I did, I, when I had those kids with me, I knew that everything I was telling them, because they, I mean, this is something they believed in. They believed that I was truly, you know, Cinderella or Belle, Snow White, any, anybody that they were talking to. I could tell them, you know, everything's going to be good. You know, believe in your dreams. Do what you can. You know, this is, the, I had, the, like, the ultimate control. <laughs> and, um, but that was, you know, that was the golden part. But behind those doors, you know, forgive me for saying this, but I experienced such frightening bullying. It was not even worth it for me to stay. I stayed as long as I could. I I was I was very sick. My mom used to come down. I had a few surgeries when I was in Florida. She'd come down, you know, go with me back and forth to the hospital. I was so sick. And, I mean, these girls had no idea what I was going through. You know, I gained so much weight. I lost so much weight. And they were vicious i mean you know no offense to you know no offense girls from you know the schools i went to in high school and middle school you guys were nasty sometimes but the girls i that were in disney with me even some of the guys were so vicious to me i would go home and i would cry day after day my name wasn't cinderella to them my name was hefferella they would come out and be like oh look we're working with the fat one today they didn't know that I was going home and taking all this medication just so I could sleep without being in pain. They had no idea what I was going through because they didn't know who I was. That was, that was, you know, like that kind of gave me such a push to want to go home, finish school, and just kind of, you know, this is what I'm doing. I have to get to these kids to realize you have no idea what you're doing to each other. So to go from my drive to become a princess, being down there gave me the drive to come home and follow my dream. Very inspiring. Um, I want to kind of share with our audience what you've shared to me, of course, which was at a certain point in time, your life kind of plateaued where um, 
if I may be so candid as to say, I would consider it as a suicide attempt of sorts that kind of came into play for you. Maybe could you guide us through the events that led up to that period in your life and perhaps how you eventually rationalized in your own mind that death was no longer an option for you? I know this is going to sound awful. Um, which one? <laughs> I know that sounds terrible to say. Is this with when I, because I, I know I took the pills at one point when I was on the phone with my mother. And then I had the, the an incident um, in April. I know that sounds terrible. You can, okay. you can address all of them, actually. I'm I mean, sorry. You know, I would like you to be as candid as humanly possible because, of course, you're speaking with yours, and it's important that they realize, A, that your life has gone to that point, you know, the circumstances revolving and getting to that point, and, and moreover, at some point you rationalize in your own mind that there are options that overlie just death. Um, the one – actually, I'm going to talk about both because the one that – was most recent. I, I have to lead up to with what led up to that because it was just okay. I'm gonna go um, when I, right okay. before I came home two years ago. I was going through such a hard time with um, where I was. I wasn't home. I didn't feel like I where I belonged was where I was supposed to be. I had no one to reach out to. I wanted to be here, but I didn't want to be here because I felt like I was a burden, which I know I wasn't. But it was just that. Again, it was my fault. I shouldn't have left in the first place, but I had to leave. It was just such an inner dialogue I had going on. Plus, I was also in so much pain. Again, you know, I'm very sick, so much going on inside. Um, the person I was with is essentially telling me, I can't deal with you. You are, you know, you have too much going on. You're too sick. How could anyone love you? Which was my biggest fear. So someone finally saying that to me, and kind of putting to life, yeah, it's true. I was like, uh, how do I just uh, essentially just numb everything going on? And I remember I um, like went into my room and I just kind of, again, I love I love to write, I love to put things down, so I'm just kind of writing out all my thoughts, like, oh my God, this is how it happened, this is what's going on, I can't believe this, you know, I, I don't know how to rationalize. I have no job, I have nothing here, I have, you know, what am I supposed to do? And I called my mom, and I was just kind of rambling on to her, and I did, I I did, I took far too much medication that I should have, and I remember just talking to her and talking to her, even, I, I think it came out as nonsense at one point, and I was just gone, and I remember, I guess it was hours and hours and hours later, um, I was being, you know, shaken awake, I don't remember anything the rest of the night until maybe the next day. And he was telling me, you know, like, oh, my God, we couldn't get you up, and it was so scary. And I was like, wait, what happened? And then I remember talking to my mom, and she was like, I couldn't even hear you breathing anymore. All I, I couldn't hear you. You just stopped talking. And I, I didn't even, you know, it's like, well, I wrote you something. You know, like you would have read something, but it, and I couldn't imagine it. I couldn't, there was no, I couldn't, I still couldn't rationalize to myself, well, I want to stay here, you know, I can't believe that almost happened. It was just like, well, I don't care, I wish I was still sleeping. You know, it wasn't even that I want to be, I don't want to be here anymore, it was just, this is still too much for me. You know, it was just that constant, I don't know how to function, I don't know what to do, and 
I think it was maybe two or three days later, I just, I drove back up home and I was like, I, you know, I can't, I can't be alone anymore. I can't function. I can't move. I'm in pain. I just want my body just to be numb. It was just trying to escape myself. I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know where to turn. And that was the only way at that point I could even fathom anything. But it wasn't that I didn't want to be here anymore. It was just that I didn't know how to make it stop. And it wasn't by any means, as people say, oh, you're being selfish. Oh, you know, look what you do to your family. It's no one can understand inside how I was feeling. So then um, I did. I came home, and this is in uh, less, just, oh, just over two years ago. And I was, you know, just trying to get back in the swing of things. I had no friends here, you know, just I came back. It had been years. I had no connections left. Um, bless bless my parents. I My brother had moved into my old bedroom, so I'm, you know, I love them. I love them dearly. I'm living in, um, I guess, like an old TV room. It used to be my brother's bedroom when he was younger, but now it's like a little TV room. Um, it, it works. I have a room. I have a roof over my head. I'll never complain. Um, I just worked. I worked every day. That was all I did when I first got back here. You know, thank God a few people would be by my side if I just had to get out for a little bit. Um, I found a new doctor, and, you know, I gave, she kind of embraced me. I felt very safe with her, and I trusted her with everything. Um, And that's when I started putting everything really into starting Angels Without Wings, because that, that that was my saving grace at this point. I worked, and that's what I worked on. Um, and that was all, that was also synonymous, I believe, at the time that you were also diagnosed with endometriosis. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. It was all kind of intermingled in between. Okay. Yeah. Um, now I'm wondering. So you have this endometriosis diagnosis, and of course, obviously, at that point in time, I know you had also prefaced losing a doctor who you had such a wonderful professional relationship with. Um, So it kind of seemed as though at this worst part of your life that you actually opted to start initiating your foundation. And I guess I'm wondering, how did this even become an option to you at that point when when everything was just so dark and bleak? I mean, how did you, where did this come from? How did this get formulated? Um, I I guess, well, the the foundation I had, the foundation had been, I guess, a baby to me back since, my A Better Way was 1995-96, and then the foundation was something that was drawn up since, you know, 98, 99, 2000 in high school, but didn't actually go into play until 2006, and it's always been there. And when I actually wanted to get it going as a foundation, um, I think it was it was my, my life raft. Like, I it was at the point where I was like, I, I don't know what... You know, this is what's happening to me, and I feel like this is, you know, how can I save everyone else? You know, I have to save myself, you know, but I want to help everyone else first, you know, kind of thing. And I was like, if I can't help me, how can I help everyone else? So I had to keep myself strong with it. And I think, I really think that by wanting to help everyone else, it essentially saved me. 
it kept me strong enough to survive everything. And now I'm, I mean, I, I feel, I feel like I walk around with a cape on. I feel like I can just conquer anything. And it's, it's because of, you know, in my darkest times, which, and it, whether people know it or not, it was up until maybe April of this year that I literally, I was walking in, in the dark. I didn't, I never saw myself coming out of it. And it was, I don't know if you want me to go back to when I was with my doctor or just keep going from here, but. It was, well, I, I but, guess that. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, well, I, I, I could just keep That's going. okay. I don't want to interrupt this thought because I know you have a lot that you that you have going on there and a lot that you want to accomplish in, in getting out there. Um, the one predominant question that I think has been resonating to me to this entire thing that I want to ask you is that the sense that I got throughout your life is that people have sought to basically strip you of your identity in one form or another. What I'm curious to find out is at what point do you feel that Valerie herself began to discover her own personal worth and identity? I think um, I, I'm going to, I think probably last year, um, last year, probably in, in October, I started to realize who I was. And even though, you know, it was coming during probably the worst time in my life, I am, I will be ever so thankful for some of the people who I met because without them, um, without, you know, the support that I have been given, I never would have been able to survive to April, to April, May, when I finally have just, you know, been able to say, yeah, I'm here and I'm ready. You know, I think it was definitely last year. Okay. And you have established your self-worth now, and you realize how ultimately irreplaceable and wonderful you are now, I assume. <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know about that, but... That's just where I you say, I... Valerie. Yes. If you yes, just say yes, yes Valerie. There yes. you go. Thank you, thank you. Um, I wanted to say that uh, I'm gathering that one of the best elements of your life has been the establishment of your foundation. Um your mission, in case uh, individuals haven't looked it up yet, is to provide information to not only battle bullying, but also to inspire those who we consider to be basically without a voice. Um, what do you envision to be the future of your foundation? What I'm hoping is, um, even within the next few months or so, I really I want to get in. This is like the, the earlier stages of it. I just want to get into the schools to the schools, to um, Girl Scouts, to Boy Scouts, to smaller groups in libraries, but predominantly into middle schools and high schools. And I want to, you know, talk to the kids. I don't want to say educate because they know. They're educated. I want to just talk to them as not um, not a teacher kind of uh, influence, but more as a friend influence, just to be like, to, to let them know what they're saying, what they're doing isn't just affecting each other right now. This is going to affect each other the rest of their lives. This isn't something that's happening now. And what they're doing is not just hurting them now. They can't go home and be safe because now they have the Internet. Now they have, you know, all these other means of connecting, the phones, the texting. They have to realize they are creating a very frightening place for each other if they continue to do this. That's how I want to approach them. And I don't want to, 
yeah, if I can get an assembly-type atmosphere, that's great if that's what I'm permitted to do. But I would love to, you know, go in, kind of go in for a week, kind of watch them in the hallways, see how they interact outside, uh, interact in the lunchrooms. And then I would love to go classroom to classroom and know how I'm addressing whom, who I have to focus on, that kind of thing. That way it's a little more personal than just a random showing, a random person showing up at the school, giving the assembly and walking out. I want it to be personal. Of course. And and obviously, of course, that's going to be, I would think, 100% better for the kids and for you as well. I mean, this is a very powerful message that needs to get out to as many people as humanly possible. And running a foundation is an immense amount of work, which, again, is a testament to you kind of goes without saying there. I know that I wanted to mention that, obviously, you had your um, fundraiser not so long ago. So we're curious as to uh, was this extremely successful, we hope, and are you planning on doing it, uh, any kind of additional events? Yeah, I, I actually had two. I had the um, the car wash. Right. And then uh, I had the one with um, Tracy and Corey. Uh, mm-hmm. Both of them were incredibly successful. I mean, the people that have come out to support Everyone, people, I can't tell you the feedback that I've gotten, the support that people have shown, everything has been just such, everyone has had such an outrageous, uh, people giving, everything has just been so wonderful. I can't even express my gratitude to everyone. And it's not just monetary donations or monetary support. It is the outreach of what can we do, how can we help, how can we get the word out, what can we do for you, what can we, you know, it's just everything. People have been incredible. That's amazing. And, of course, obviously what the hope here is, is, of course, by doing things like interviews such as this and getting the word out and telling a friend and getting to another friend and another friend, not only do the tragedies decimate we're not having individuals feeling like they're alone and helpless, but they're also feeling better about themselves and, and can spread the word and continue to pay it forward, if you will. I guess that's probably the best way I'd look at it. Does that make sense? That's it. Exactly. That's um, it. Yep, I think so. Now, um, I want you to, if you could, maybe look a year or two down the road. So where do you see Valerie's life at that point? Where do you see, what do you, what will you be doing do you think you'll have found your happiness at that point? Will you be married by then? <laughs> well, those curious questions I want to know. <laughs> Two years down the road. What do um, you see for your <laughs> Well, I'll start off with I hope I'm married. <laughs> Me too. Um, I, I, hope that, um, I hope that a lot of schools will have a program going for children who don't have a safety net at home, have something to go to after school with kids who who do tend to feel alone that have a safety place to go. Um, I want to have that kind of program set up at tons of schools. Uh, I hope to be going to tons of schools. I would like to have, I would like to have a book out there for people to, and like, I I think I put up a a thing on my site today saying, you know, I don't want people to think it's a sob story. I just want people to realize that you can come out of everything stronger, braver, you know, fiercer than you were before. That's that's my my lesson out there to everyone, you know. Um, that's all I want people to realize, you know. And I know, I, you know, I haven't had the worst life. I haven't been through the worst things, but you know, everybody can can come out um, on top. You know, follow a dream, find something, and you know, work as hard as you can for it. Don't let people bring you down. And you, you know, if there are people that are gonna try to pick on you, bully you, take you down, just remember that you know 
they're sad inside. There's something in them that's hurting, and you know, if, feel bad for them. You know, have pity for them and try and try and do something nice for them. <laughs> Definitely. In fact, you you must be reading my mind because it kind of correlates. We have two whole questions left, and you've done amazingly well. Oh, um, <laughs> I wanted to to ask you, um, maybe to those who happen to be listening who are either living with the daily struggles of, of course, being a bipolar individual or being bullied, of course, one or the other, what advice might you be offering to them, having been a survivor yourself? Um. Well, I guess to both of those, um, if being bullied, uh, I'm finding, you know, even even today, you know, I, I find myself being bullied, and it's much easier now to kind of, I won't say tune them out, but I, I, I feel even worse for them now being an adult because it takes so much effort to bo- to bother bullying someone, you know, to just go out of your way and having to do that. It's just easier to be nice, to get along. You know, and even that agitation you have, it, it, I mean, well, it makes me, you know, makes my stomach hurt to even (laughs) try and argue with someone or, you know, be mean to someone or anything like that. And, you know, if, if you're being bullied, you know, I I know this is cliche to say, but walk away. You know, it's Mm -hmm. a lot easier to just walk away instead of embracing it or dealing with it. And, you know, sometimes I know it's, impossible to like if you're stuck in an elevator or something you know, i don't know pretend pretend you don't speak the same language i don't, I don't know how to it, it's a tough situation or even just asking you know why why are you wasting your time you know you're not going to get a rise out of me that kind of thing definitely all very good sound solid it's advice not actually worth it um and for people with bipolar um i'll tell you something just the fact that you know, I'm gonna. I'll, I'll be honest. The fact that I'm I'm able to work every day, and like like you said yourself, with it, the fact that we can function, work, uh, hold a job, and you know, be out there every day, is a blessing. It is a blessing itself. So you know, kudos to anyone who's able to do that. And you know, I think it's it's a huge bonus to be able to have um, a, a blessed lifestyle like that. And, you know, if not, um, if you have a rough day, you know, just be thankful you're having a day. You know, I just have to remember that. A lot of times I have to remember that. And even when, you know, I'm having like a a sad day, you know, I'm just like, okay. You know, I could see myself having the sad day and I'm like, tomorrow will be better. You know, just remember, you know, it's an actual day and you're living. So I try and keep, that's why I try and keep my uh, my inspirational page, even for myself, you know. It's, it keeps myself yep. happy. So if anybody needs a happy day, just go visit the web page. Yes. Well, I have actually a <laughs> suggestion to keep Valerie happy. That's our last kind of passing thing here before I tell everybody how they can get a hold of you. Um, I came up with this today because, of course, as everybody knows, who listen to my show already, I do dabble in writing on occasion once in a great while. I will be posting this up on my Facebook page. I will try to get it on my Twitter page. And anyone who listens to this show who will either – befriend Valerie or like her page or have an association with her, I will ask that she post this up so that when Valerie uh, has a bad day, she needs to look at this. I took the letters of your name, and I have seven words to describe you. And keep in mind, audience, I have never met Valerie ever before. So this is my synopsis of you in seven simple words based upon the letters of your name. So the V is for vulnerable, The A is for adorable. The L is for loving. 
the E is for eclectic, the R is for respectable, the I is for intelligent, and the E is for energetic. So at any point in time, if you happen to forget the definition of who you are, it will be posted up everywhere. And hopefully the individuals who have listened tonight, especially any individual who's suffering from any form of being persecuted or being bullied or being in that bipolar situation, I find it very helpful that when your friends or or people in society can kind of cling to each other, especially in like situations, and have something like this, anytime you feel badly about yourself, every tiny little bit helps. So that's my little parting gift for you. Um, I want to make sure... You are welcome. I want to make sure to let everybody know um, all of the available outlets for Valerie. Obviously, she is on Facebook. Um, Two different ways. We have, of course, the Angels Without Wings, Inc., which is her site, obviously, which you can like, her page there. Valerie's Daily Inspirations, which is also on Facebook, and you can like that. Valerie, of course, is on Twitter, and which is at Valerie Inspires, which is all one word. And, of course, her websites, which is the www.valeriesdailyinspirations.com and www.angelswow.com. Am I missing anything, boss? No, I think that's good. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm getting you shameless promotion. Suck it up for all it's worth. I don't know. That, that's good. Okay, that's this good. is wonderful. And as I mentioned, uh, shortly after the interview, I will be posting up the Valerie on uh, my page. I will also be posting it upon her pages. And in addition to which, hopefully her and I will be able to find some way to use the Valerie acronym to try to raise her some funds for her foundation. Oh, and the last so thing I can say to you, Valerie, is how very touched I am and how much I, I, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you being on my on my show. It's just immeasurably important to me what you do. I appreciate your foundation and its work. I appreciate your existence. And I really hope that you'll consider coming back on my show again. That would that would be my honor. I I can't thank you enough for letting me part of me be part of this tonight, for getting to talk to you and actually get some of that story out there that I, I want people to know who I am and why this is really um close to my heart and why I want to get this out there. So this Certainly. is this is all thanks to you. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much. And I'll be certain this evening, of course, to go ahead on my Facebook page, put again all of Valerie's links so you can get in contact with her. For anybody else who didn't get a chance to listen at the 6 o'clock hour, all of my episodes are archived, so certainly you can go on at any point in time and listen to this uh, interview after the fact. And we will be also placing it onto uh, YouTube so that this way anyone across the country can go ahead and listen to uh, Angels Without Wings. So, Valerie, I will officially let you go and hope that you have a wonderful evening. Thanks. I'll talk to you soon. All right. You take care, Valerie. Thanks again. Good night. Good night. Okay. I want to say thank you so very much to Valerie, my guest this evening. Uh, I just wanted to give you a heads up that my next interview will actually be on September 12th. The individual I'm going to be interviewing is Malik Halab, who is actually an actor, a dancer, and a singer. So I'm looking forward to that next interview. So you have yourselves a wonderful weekend, and I look forward to talking with you next week.